New York area listeners, just a reminder, Andrew Talks to Chefs is doing our first live show at the Brooklyn Podcast Festival. Join us at the Bell House in the Gowanus neighborhood of Brooklyn on Saturday, January 12th at 2.30 p.m. with special guests Tom Colicchio, Greg Backstrom, Alex Raj, and Alan Harding, plus a live performance of our theme music and other songs by the Brooklyn-based band Fathers. Tickets are $15, but with the promo code ANDREW, they are yours for just $10. Visit ATTC, that's short for Andrew Talks to Chefs, attcbkpodfest.eventbrite.com, or if that's too long to remember, visit the event page on my blog, tokeland.com slash appearances. Hope to see you there. The Heritage End of Year Fund Drive is officially on. Become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. I'm Massimo Bottura. Hi, this is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs on Heritage Radio. You know, there's not that much difference between, like, we were saying, you know, this, these restaurants are partly shows in themselves. And so, you know, your timing is, is very important. And so it wasn't that much of a stretch to, to coordinate. Instead of coordinated with the diners finishing their course, we coordinated with the action on the stage. That is pastry chef Bill Yassis of the Four Seasons Restaurant in New York City and the chef of the Broadway production Network. Our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. And today's guest is sort of a legend in the culinary world. His name is Bill Yassis. Many of you might have heard of Bill in the last several years because he was the pastry chef of the White House. He came in during the George W. Bush administration and then served the Obamas. President Obama famously referred to him as the crust master for his flaky pie crust. He actually founded a company called Perfect Pie after he was there. He's been involved with two Broadway shows. He did the food service for the play Sweeney Todd. We explained during the interview, for those of you who don't know the play, but pies play a prominent role in that show. And we get into how Bill got involved in that. And then that rolled over into his involvement in the current production of Network with Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad, which has earned rave reviews. Bill is also the pastry chef at the new Four Seasons restaurant in New York City. As some of you may know, and I'm only going to touch on this briefly, the restaurant has been the source of some controversy lately. I'm not going to hash that out here. Bill and I did an interview about his entire career, including about his current gig. Um, And I want to give Bill the floor. Uh, Bill has his own relationships there, and I'll let him speak to those. And um, I'm not going to let the rest of it intrude on an interview with somebody who I consider to be a legend. So um, I'm just going to let the interview speak for itself. But I will say that earlier in his career, he was the original pastry chef at Boulay Restaurant, David Boulay's four-star restaurant in New York City. He spent time at Tavern on the Green. Bill's seen a lot. And I think as much as anybody, 
I've ever met in this profession. He has found ways to constantly refresh what he does and keep it really interesting. He's a ball of energy. He's also an incredibly intelligent, cultured, interesting person to speak to. And I think you're going to really enjoy this interview. So with all that, I'm going to turn it over to our interview. We met at the restaurant on a rainy Sunday afternoon a few weeks back in New York City. And I think that's all I need to say about it. Here you go. My interview with pastry chef Bill Yassis. Well, we don't need to get into it. This is, this is a third time's the charm situation. Yes, it is. <laughs> but we, we find, hope. We haven't finished it yet. We haven't completed the interview, but we, at least we've gotten to this, this stage. Right. Um, first of all, can you just... This was so interesting to me. When I arrived, you said that when you do interviews, you like to sit side by side. Yeah. And not across. Yeah. I like that in restaurants, too. When I'm seated with someone, I like to be... I'm one of those uh, dining hogs that likes to take up two tables so I mm-hmm. can sit on a banquette side yes. by side with the person I'm with. And um, I, what I like about that is that across the table uh, is, could become, or at least sort of sets up a dynamic of confrontation. So I think it's less confrontational when you sit side by side. Mm-hmm. And I, I learned this when I was in a marriage counseling session with my husband. Yeah. And our therapist said, have you ever noticed that conversations go better when you're in the car? And, um, and her theory was that uh, you're sitting side by side. You're not face to face, eye to eye. You're both sort of thinking about other things. You're thinking about, you're looking at the world. You're thinking about the world with yes. another person as yes. opposed to across from them when you're Interesting. Against the other person. Are, are most people as receptive to it as I was in uh, interviews? I, well, you can't it, always do it. No, I mean, if you're in a sound studio, they're not going to... Right, they're not going to rewire that. Right, they're not right, going to rewire, re, rewire re, no, reconfigure the room. Most people don't mind, I don't think. <laughs> okay. Are we the only people in this building today? No, I have a small team with me. Okay, but we are here on a Sunday. I should say it's a dreary... I, I don't know why. I find... Um, it has to be where I was in my life at the time when I worked in Midtown. But I find rainy Sundays in Midtown Manhattan, I think there's nothing sadder. Magical. You find it I magical. I find it so magical. I find it sad. And because I think it's because when I had a job in Midtown, I, when in my 20s, I was a sad, lonely dude. But why do you find it magical? Uh, because it's all mine. <laughs> uh, you know, you contend with the New York concentration of people all week yeah. long and then you come here on a Sunday yes and it's rainy and it's romantic and yeah. it's, it's like the Woody Allen movie Manhattan yes it's the real New York yeah like, it belongs to me it's funny there's a st- shop across the street I've never been in it mm-hmm. Duke know it there's, well there's like one customer in there well <laughs> I was I, looking I at it this I morning did. going well, I, why are they open <laughs> I don't don't take this the wrong way but they're Korean Okay. And they're open 24-7. Oh, they are. And, okay, so they're always uh, open. Saturday, you'd notice everything else here is closed. Yeah. Because there's nobody Starbucks here. even is closed Starbucks next door. Starbucks <laughs> is closed. That's weird. And uh, no, but yeah. uh, Duke, if they have a customer, they're open. Okay. So, Bill, this is, you know, I, I think about your career. Mm-hmm. And um, 
you know, there's that famous line, there's no second acts in American lives. Mm. What act are you on? Oh, you've you've kept know. so engaged. I'm you've old, done, that's all. No, but you've kept, you. my impression is you've managed to keep your craft and your career, you've, you've reinvented what you do, not what you do, where, where, and where you do it and to what purpose you do it and for whom you're doing it. Mm. In the last decade and a half, maybe, you've, you've really managed to keep refreshing. I, Is that accurate? I believe, I believe I have. I've made a concentrated effort. Uh, yeah, not to, go, not to slow down. I'm not trying to prove anything. I, I mean, I, you know, early in my career, I had great successes. And, uh, you know, I, I just feel like as a personal sort of um, philosophy, yeah. I, I just want to do all I can. And I want to make you know, make the most carpe diem. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I've, I've always thought that and uh, hopefully practiced it. Right. Um, and I'm having a blast. Okay. Can we go in Benjamin Button sequence? Can we go backwards? Sure. Okay. Sure. Yeah. So let's talk about the things you are engaged in right now. First of all, we're sitting here at the Force, the new home of the Four Seasons. Yeah. Uh, what drew you to this project and what's it been like um, taking it on? Um, well, I've been friends with uh, Julian Nicolini and Lisa Nicolini for years. And in fact, I went to school with Lisa many decades ago. Mm. And um, we we just always been chummy. And um, I was around the restaurant from time to time, like doing a class or, you know, just seeing them. And um, and I think all New Yorkers have kind of a a vested interest, let's say, cultural interest in the Four Seasons restaurant. It created. The modern restaurant. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, uh, and still has this sort of like a artwork sensibility. I mean, uh, Phyllis Lambert, who's still alive, by the way, and was here. Oh yeah. Uh, was uh, you know her her father um, Edgar Bronfman, or, or was it Samuel? I'm not sure of the whole history, but anyway, he he said, oh, I want to open a restaurant, and, and we're gonna you know, do it with the restaurant associates or whatever. And, and she said, well, if I'm involved, I'm taking over. And this is very Phyllis Lambert thing to yeah. say. She did, and she was living in Paris, and she said, well, there's a great architect here, Mies van der Rohe, that's who's gonna do it. And uh, Mies van der Rohe, I think, did not have a New York architectural license, so he had to partner with Philip Johnson. Uh, and then all kinds of people got involved. Ada Louise Huxtable, who was the New York Times design <clears throat> editor at the time, uh, was also, uh, she did the tableware mm -hmm. design. Um, Eero Saarinen did furniture. I mean, these are the, you know, giants of mid-century modern design, although I didn't even know if they called it that then. Right. And... Um, and well, and then just, on the culinary side, James Beard James consulted. Beard. Mimi Sheridan was yeah. part of the team. I mean, and when you look back on it, yeah. they're like, they were just like, oh yeah, we're opening a restaurant, right? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they were they were creating an entire new culture, and uh, all restaurants, I think, since then, had whether they are directly uh, in that lineage or not, restaurant as event as yeah, as it was kind of like the cultural icon it was, was sort of born. like when hollywood when the blockbuster came to hollywood yeah that was a true. new type of movie it's a blockbuster yes, right this right. was a blockbuster we're not restaurant just feeding you right. we're we're recreating the world yes or as my friend david waltuck would say dinner and a show 
Yes, right, right. <laughs> Supper theaters, right, supper club. right. Without an actual show, the dinner was the the whole the event was the show. That's right. Uh, but what? So beyond your personal connection, beyond mm-hmm. this historical mm-hmm. reverence, uh, what what made it compelling? Was it was it something that immediately you thought, yeah, this sounds like no, right up my alley? No, I mean, uh, I, it, it certainly no, because I mean, I was like told myself when I left the White House that I was never going back into restaurants. Um, so I did other things. I did like, you know, little speaking tours and stuff like that. And I missed it. So it's the only thing I've ever done in my adult life. And I was really not happy, not in the kitchen. So, uh, and then talking with Alex and Julian and there's wonderful, they're generous, kind, uh, just wonderful people. And, um, you know, and they obviously were fully committed to recreating Four Seasons 2.0, mm-hmm. and that was a very exciting project. For mm-hmm. Did the fact that the restaurant had moved to a new home, I have to imagine that changed the nature of the assignment. Uh, sure. Maybe made it a little less daunting if you would have been daunted by doing it in the original. You're nodding affirmatively. Yes. Uh, <laughs> maybe gave you a little more license, maybe sure. allowed yeah. you to be a little more free in how you came at Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So, I mean, yeah, if, I mean, if they were still in the other place and said, oh, can you be our pastry chef, I probably would have declined. Oh, really? But, um, but yeah, this is so exciting. The architect is Issei Weinfeld, a uh, Brazilian architect who had not really done rest. I don't think he had done other restaurants before this one. And uh, he has a very kind of um, Japanese sensibility. The room we're in is a very serene. Um, in, the leg- in the sort of legacy or the heritage of Mies van der Rohe, there's a lot of right angles. Uh, <laughs> but um, it's so warm and cozy. And every surface is just makes you want to touch it. The wood, the stone floors, the leather banquettes, the everything, um, just is warm and cozy and, and rich mm-hmm. in, a, in a tactile sense. And um, so when I saw those plans, too, that made it equally exciting. Uh, much of it is, and he's a you know, advocate of sustainability and rainforest, and so there's a lot of elements, even though it's a very modern design, of a kind of uh, Brazilian landscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wood is teak. The there's these raindrop crystals uh, in the windows, uh, and um, the whole place is just shimmering and beautiful. Yeah. So, what was it like designing the dessert program here? How'd well, you go that about was that? Very interesting uh, because they have a huge library of the old menus, mm-hmm. um, which were, um, you know, the actual menus from 1958 and on. And the shocking thing was like how advanced they were at the time. I mean, there was, there's things on those menus that you, some places would have a difficult time introducing today. Um, sea urchin and cloudberries and all the wild mushrooms were already on that menu in 58, 59. And, you know, I, apparently, you know, Beard was involved. And, um, and uh, they were just, they were it's just a beautiful menu so that was uh, exciting in itself and um you know they there was not a lot of um sort of uh go around with the owners about the direction of the menu they merely said i mean one of the few restrictions i had was you know it's an american restaurant so we tried to use english on the menu 
um, my background is French, so sometimes that, that I run into a log jam there where I'm, I don't know what the English word is. Ironically. It sounds very yes. pretentious, yeah. but, no. you know, I mean. That's how you're wired. Yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah. Marron glacé sounds so much better than candy chestnuts. <laughs> 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 um, so, but anyway, uh, yeah. yeah, it was exciting. And, uh, you know, and my own sensibility kind of matches theirs in that, I like a very recognizable dessert. I, I I like to know what it is as much, and I love molecular gastronomy and the whole modernist sort of style. And I love playing with it uh, as a special. But in this restaurant, I mean, it, it really seems like there should be a solid American dessert heritage on the menu. And so we, that's what we have done. Mm-hmm. Um, we have we did resurrect a. Um, an item from one of the early days. Uh, so one of the pastry chefs here was Albert Kuman, who sadly passed away uh, last year, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he created what was called the barroom chocolate cake, which is really a chocolate Napoleon. So it's chocolate uh, puff pastry with a, at that time I think it was buttercream, but we've replaced that with a sort of a fluffy ganache. and. Um, so that's a that's an homage to the original dessert menu, but the, it all is kind of an homage to the original because we're we're staying very much in the in the American sort of lexicon of desserts. There's a crostata. There's a baba. That's another one. Like what, what's English for baba or savarin? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and um, but we we do it in a I suppose what would may look like a smaller portion to them in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't have a, a cart anymore. They had a cart, a dessert cart, mm-hmm. with large cakes and all that. Uh, so I think we're, we're modern. We're fully in the um, zeitgeist of dessert making these days. They're smaller, they're lighter. The ingredients are top quality. Mm-hmm. The chef here is a younger gentleman. <laughs> What's the dynamic like between the two of you? It's is really is fun there an interesting give and take there? Diego Garcia. Yeah. Uh, we have, he's wonderful. Uh, he's, he was at Le Bernardin pr- previously. Correct. Sous uh, chef at Bernardin. Then he had his own restaurant called Gloria, which was also fish centered. Um, he's, an, he's an awesome person. He's a friend. He's a great manager. He's a brilliant chef. Um, and uh, he'll kill me for saying this, but he's Cher's nephew. I did not know that. <laughs> okay. So, uh, what gay man in New York City is not going to want to work with Cher's <laughs> <Right>. nephew? <laughs> okay. He doesn't talk about it. but So, you're not only doing that. You, you, I don't know the exact nature of this, but you were involved in, if my count is correct, unless there's one I'm unaware of, but the second Broadway production that you've been connected to, Sweeney Todd yes. pre- previously, mm-hmm. and now the about to debut Network, mm-hmm. starring That's Brian true. Cranston. Yes. What exactly are you doing with this show? When I moved back to New York, I started a, um, I started what I call a pie company, uh, Perfect Pie. And uh, about that same time, uh, there were the producers of a, a London version of Sweeney Todd in New York looking for a venue. And so they, they decided they wanted to actually serve um, pies 
They want, it was an immersive experience. They, built, they wanted to build a pie shop and, and serve pies, and then the show would be performed around the audience. And this was because they uh, originally did this show in the oldest pie shop in London, Harrington's, and, uh, which is a really cute, only like 25-seat little restaurant in uh, Tooting, South London. And uh, so they, they did this. They jammed this show, this little show, into this tiny restaurant, and they were standing on the tables, so there was just no room for a stage. Right. Anyway. Um, Can I interrupt for one second? For yeah, people who sure. aren't. Yes. Like, I was a former theater kid. Mm. You know the play. Um, Sweeney Todd, if I'm not mistaken, the, the subtitle is The Demon Barber of Fleet Street? That is correct. And what is it about? So it How is did the pies figure into a, this story? A, a vengeful barber who was wronged in his life, uh, terribly wronged by a corrupt justice system in the 19th century. And he takes his revenge by um, when he gives haircuts, this barber, on Fleet Street. He ends the haircut by slitting his customers' throats. And um, he's happy with that system. Uh, he's quite content to keep going. But the, his neighbor downstairs, Mrs. Lovett, has a pie shop. And she decides in a beautiful scene um, that this would be an inexpensive way to provide meat for her meat pies. And so he slides them down a chute to her and she uh, butchers them and cooks humans into meat pies. Okay, so that's how the pies charming, figure in. Charming tale. Charming tale yes. of cannibalism. Yes, this, yes. So, Soylent Green is people. That's right, <laughs> it is very much Soylent Green. And, and so, um, but it's it's... Believe it or not, it's a comedy. Uh, yeah. So um, Stephen Sondheim is the composer, and um, the, the, it's quite witty. And so this incredible production was done in a pie shop, a real pie shop, um, in London. And uh, because the producer, Rachel Edwards, was walking down her street in Tooting one day, and there was a barber shop on one side of the street and the pie shop on the other. And so that kind of occurred to her, like, this, the universe is talking to me. Anyway... Uh, make a long story short or longer, um, they decided to come here and they saw, oh, Bill Yossis, oh, he's making pies, so let's have him make these. And they were like, do you want to do pies for our uh, off-Broadway show? I'm like, sure, what is it? And they're like, Sweeney Todd. She's <laughs> <laughs> like, no. Um, but I'm a sucker for an English accent. So okay. I, um, yeah, so we did it and it was a huge success, at least in our own minds. And... Um, now, how did that work? What did you... So, you were I, pretty, had you were, a, I had a little commissary in yeah. Long Island City. We made them there. We brought them into uh, the Barrow Street Theater. Yeah. And they did recreate a pie shop, exactly like Harrington's. Uh, and the people came in, and they had their pie. They sat down at a communal, communal tables mm -hmm. and uh, had their pie and mash, uh, mashed potatoes. And uh, then they... Um, Slowly, sort of, some other people came in and sat down who were dressed in kind of 19th century costumes. So, you know, something's up. But they would sit and they would talk with the customers and then at one point burst into song and there was mm -hmm. a small orchestra and all that. So the, the, whole, the whole pie thing in England is fascinating. I didn't know about it. Can I Please. go off on Yeah, of course. Tangent? That's what we're here for. Um, so apparently uh, this... These pies were, were meant to be for a working class, uh, I, I mean, very, very 
quick, rapid, cheap, and they still are. They're, they're £2.75 now hmm. to this day. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so something people could grab in a hurry and filling and mashed potatoes and uh, what they call liquor, which is a kind of a green gravy. Um, and they, so you would get that and your pint, and that would be your lunch or dinner. And to this day, they have a very devoted clientele that show up there every day. Um, so, but it came from the fact that there were eels in the Thames, a lot of eels, and people were catching eels and uh, they were making pies out of eels. So that was, they were meat pies, but the meat was eel meat. Huh. Um, and so that's how it really started. And so the, uh, the iconic, uh, the um, sort of logos on the wall are ships and there's all kinds of nautical yeah. themes in, in Harrington's because they were catching it. And so that's still like the traditional uh, English meat pie is often an eel pie. So you have these drawers that they pull out squirming eels, slam a nail through their head, skin them. Oh, that's what they do. They don't salt them to death. Yes. That's the other way, isn't it? It's Can't quite, you salt eels to thing, death? Yeah. yeah. It's quite gruesome. Yeah. Um, Can I just ask, though, when they yes. did the classic, you said that they would call them meat pies, but they had eel. Was the, were they cooked in such a way to try to disguise their oh, not at all. eelness? No, they loved no. the eel. The English loved the eel pies. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They, and, and so we had a sign on our counter, um, sorry, we're out of eels, because we didn't think we were really going to be able to sell... So mine turned into kind of a chicken pot pie. Okay. A little more anodyne version. Got it. So you were doing daily production, and then they would be transported from Long yeah, Island City to the theater? Brought them in, and, we, and I served them, too. Did you, um, and you enjoyed that part of it? Loved it. You loved, loved it. it. You get to meet the customer, and you're yeah. sort of, you know, it's your wink and a nod about what the ingredients are. Of course, and, yeah. Um, that was a lot of fun. That's great. Okay, so you and network is what? Okay, so how that, how does that that connection make sense? Right, that's right. very clear. The 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 there's pies are a central part of Sweeney Todd. Network, and again, I'm going to uh, say for people who don't know yeah. or aren't as old as Explain I am or we are, uh, Network was a brilliant movie. I want to say it came out in '76. That's right. Uh, it was written by Patty Chayefsky, uh, and it was about. Uh, the famous line that even people who may not know where it comes from is, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And it's about a fading newscaster who turns into uh, sort of this figure that predicted Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity and, uh, and all of these sort of cult of personality television figures and he would come on the air and and do these nightly monologue slash rants and that's in short what the movie what the original movie was about it's now turned into a play which i guess debuted in london and did extremely well brian cranston of breaking bad is the star and it's coming to new york imminently so how do the, how do the, how does what you do figure into that so um yeah that's a little more of a tenuous connection so we um so, you know, Sweeney sort of got me in touch with a lot of theater producers and people in that field. So when this is the National Theater of London that put it on in London, and uh, when they came to New York, um, my name popped up. And uh, there again, I was like, what, what's the connection? Right. Because um, there's not really a lot of food in network. But you described it very accurately, this sort of latter-day prophet who 
turns into this uh, ranting, raving madman. And the, the movie really did predict our era. Uh, it's basically it's it stunning. the creation of Fox News. and At a time uh, when there were three television networks. Yeah. I mean, it's stunning. Yeah. So he, he has th this fading newscaster. Uh, his ratings are, are going down, and he has basically a nervous breakdown on stage. On, on camera, and that boosts his his uh, ratings. And then those, these cynical television executives say, "Well, let's use it," and they keep putting him out there, and he goes more and more insane, and the ratings keep, yeah, going up. Yeah, that's the gist. Um, so the connection is uh, it has more to do with the director than the story itself. So the director is Ivo Van Hove, and um, Jan Verswevel. So they are a very innovative directing team. Ivo uh, has did The Crucible and uh, on Broadway. And, and they have amazing sets. In this particular case, Network, they have huge screens, which uh, sort of, so even though you're in a live theater, some of what you're seeing is on a big screen. And the point of this is that we have merged the kind of our own reality. We've kind of given up our own stake in living and we thrive off of a screen. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether it's a computer screen, a tele in those days it was television screen. But the, one of the themes of the movie is that we've given up our own autonomy and we do what the screen tells us. And reality, and, and our reality. own reality. We don't have a reality. We just exists through this screen. Oh, yeah. oh, is that what they're wearing? Is that what they're saying? Is that how they raise their children? Is that how they eat? That's what I will do. But have you had moments like this in, in, in life? Uh, you know, I'll, uh, not at tennis matches, but my son loves basketball. So once in a while we go to a basketball game and they have the sc their screens, right? So very often uh, around, uh, over the center of the, uh, over the center of the court. The and I'll catch myself watching the screen. That's right. <laughs> We're and I've done the same thing at, uh -huh. at concerts. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. if it's a huge venue like Madison Square Garden, right. there will be the obviously the band on stage, but then there will also be sort of a Diamond Vision screen or the equivalent of that. And I'll catch myself watching the screen. I'm like, it's twisted. What am I doing? Why yeah. am I watching the screen? Yeah. I paid to be here. Right. Why you is there a screen? <laughs> and like so many people yeah. with the phone thing and the photographs. Yeah. Like, I'm, you know. Everything doesn't have to be photographed. You don't yeah. have to live through that screen. Live well, that's the life. other brilliant... You know, you want to talk about prescient lines. There's a line in Truth or Dare, mm -hmm. the Madonna film. Right. And in the movie, do you remember that she's dating Warren Beatty at that time? Right. And somebody says, do you mind if we film this or do you mind... If I haven't seen it in a long time. Do you mind if we take a picture? And he said, does she mind? It doesn't really happen if it doesn't happen on yes, camera. Right. right? It does really And that happen. is one of the great... It's like, to me, that's up there with Andy Warhol's 15 Minutes 15 of Fame. Minutes of yeah, fame. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, was, it was so predictive. You know, and we, I think we, we sort of dance around the subject. And, and there was an article in the Times a couple of weeks ago about how Silicon Valley executives and, and media executives really limit their kids' screen time because they're... Yes. They're, it's like cigarettes. Yes. You know, they know how damaging it is. They know how dangerous this giving up autonomy is. And um, so that gets to what, how do I get involved? Yes. Because uh, in the London production and in this production, uh, there's a restaurant on stage. And there are some scenes in the restaurant, but not actually that many. But the, the idea is that the, the real audience, you can buy tickets to sit on stage and have a meal that I cook 
Um, so you're sitting in this restaurant, like you're two feet away from Brian Cranston having a nervous breakdown, which is probably not good for your digestion. <laughs> um, but you're sitting on stage, and so it sort of completes this picture of where are we? Is that a real world? Are those real diners? Are they? So there's a restaurant, and so it's it's this confusion between uh, this sort of you know myth and reality screen and the real world, and it's it's mixed and it's meant to um, sort of blur those lines. Got it. And you're doing the food for that restaurant. So I do the food. Is um, it stri- is it there's so there is savory as well? Yeah, it's savory. Uh-huh. It's all savory. Yeah. I so, assume people are not ordering off a menu. You no, it's a set menu. Um, they can order. They can pre-order a vegetarian version. They can. Yeah. That's accommodating. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's you know they buy they pay for it when they buy their tickets so they can tell right. us we want yeah. we want vegetarian but um and it's a very small we're actually on stage um so they've created a kitchen for me and um we we work out at that it's more like tapas style i would say um and uh so that what's interesting though for because this is happening during the play is that the timing is very very uh very Precise. So I yeah. know you've been involved in that kind of show and yeah. and, uh, and film and television. So it's it's at like twelve minutes four <laughs> seconds that the main course goes out into the show. You know, yeah. we have to keep we have a, like a time clock running. So um, that was an interesting thing to um, get used to. But so how did that affect what you're are you serving things that are at room temperature or are yeah you... room temperature? Okay. Yes, uh-huh. they're tapas. I mean, some of them we can keep in a thermos and keep a little bit warm. Right, but you're not trying to. We're not cooking. You're not trying to uh, go for the 10.0 degree of difficulty to make your life crazy. Right. Although yeah. they did in London, they had an actual kitchen. They did in backstage, and they so it was cooking. an actual service, and they were They're putting out food and to the minute. Food went out to the wow. to the table to the minute. Yeah. Okay, that's a masochistic <laughs> chef. <laughs> well, I think people, you know, there's not that much difference between like we were saying, you know, this. These restaurants are partly shows in themselves, and hundred uh, percent. And so, you know, your timing is is very important. And so, it wasn't that much of a stretch to to coordinate. Instead of coordinated with the diners finishing their course, we coordinated with the action on the stage. It's funny, you know. It's it is this interesting coming together of the what I think of as the two show must go on businesses right restaurants Mm -hmm. I just had I just the day before you and I are sitting here I dropped uh, the episode with Bo Beck from Mm -hmm. Denmark and he was saying you know could you imagine if I called you and said uh, one of my cooks is sick can you come tomorrow you just don't do that in the restaurant business and he said the show goes on you know he used Uh the theater term right Mm-hmm. Which is fascinating. So, mm-hmm. Bill, well, you you earlier in this interview alluded to, I think you said, I would never say this. You said I'm old or something like that. <laughs> but you you you're not in your twenties. You're I not. I don't feel. You're old, not in your thirties. You know, but been you around the block. A few but times. you are. Uh, you got this. Is a. I mean, either of these things would be a lot for anybody. And, um, but you're doing both of these things. Um, what do you, can I ask? Do you have a, are you a, are you a fitness buff? Do you have a regiment or do you, do you stretch a lot? Never you, heard of it. Really? Um, no. You're also but like, you're, you know you're a very is? trim it's fellow, a, if you don't mind my saying. Well, this is the only thing I've ever done. So it's stamina. I'm just running on inertia basically. Really? Um, do you think it's genetics? Or are you just sort of naturally energetic and, um, perhaps, but it's, it's nature nurture because 
the restaurant business is always demanding. You have to yeah. be present. You know, I always say the thing about food is it's perishable. You cannot just turn your back because the, the life of the ingredient is still yeah. going on. Yes. So that's what I think keeps chefs very engaged and very active because you're constantly looking behind yourself at yeah. the, the oranges, the apples, the, you know, lettuce. And yeah. It keeps going whether the, that clock keeps yes. ticking. So it's, it's what has, I think, keeps chefs active and young at heart um, mm -hmm. because they have to be constantly on all cylinders. I will say, though, I find it to be something more true of your generation than the current generation coming up. So many people who came up when you did are still working in restaurants. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I know a lot of people in their 30s who have already... You know, they've got chefs de cuisine at all their places, and they're sort of off at the promo doing the promotional conference circuit. Yeah. And they're, but you know, but then I, when I was researching this book I had out earlier this year, yes, right. you know, I would go to see Cindy Paulson in Napa, mm -hmm. or I would go to see Nancy Silverton in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. or I would go to see Jonathan Waxman at Barbudo in New York. They were all working. They're still in whites. Yes. They were in. Uh -huh. They were all. Nancy. Yeah. Uh, uh, Nancy was checking on a sausage. You know, right before we sat down, <laughs> we met at Chispaca in her restaurant uh cindy it was a friday at like 5 p.m she was uh she was getting a lamb shank ready to go in the oven she was testing a lamb shank recipe on a friday night and it it, it does seem to me i don't know i think it i think it's indicative of why you guys all got into the business you know that it wasn't yeah, for like you probably didn't see it you probably couldn't have even fathomed that at some point in your life you'd have the opportunity to be cooking on you know for a broadway show yeah, I didn't. Um, but as much as it's about yeah, so that kind of entertainment, I'm, yeah. I'm not the the creative side of the artistic side of theater. I mean, I'm still a chef. Oh, sure. And um, and the same thing I think is probably true of those people that you mentioned. That's how we think of ourselves, just in terms of the food. And maybe that what you said is very um, perceptive. I hadn't thought of it before, but I think maybe younger people who have seen more of the Food Network uh, see being a chef as much more involved with the face and, and talking to people and teaching people and being on camera. So they're maybe more willing and to branch out and, and you know, work those Looking like a clover, shining like a bride. Landing on a my theme song and break music is from After School Special's album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre, which is available on iTunes. Next year, Heritage Radio Network is turning 10. For the last decade, we've been committed to bringing listeners around the world the very best in food radio for free. Our small staff and incredible network of hosts work hard so that listeners can tune in each week to hear the important conversations in food policy, stay on the cutting edge of cocktail culture, and hear the latest updates in food tech. But there is no HRN without the support of listeners like you. Become a member of Heritage Radio Network today and help HRN get a strong start to our second decade. Choose from exclusive member gifts and stay in the loop on discounts to upcoming events. There's no better time to show your support. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate 
and wish HRN a happy birthday. Welcome back to the show. We'll get you back to the rest of our interview with Bill Yassis in just a moment. But first, a reminder, if you'd like to subscribe to the show, that is the best way to keep up with us. It is free, and you can do that at Stitcher or iTunes. If you don't want to do that, you can follow the show on Instagram. Our handle is at Chef Podcast. That's at Chef Podcast. If you've been following the show for the last few episodes, you know that I was getting these ready to roll before the Christmas break at the station. And as you can hear, I'm sure in my voice, I'm fighting a little something, and I need to keep these short. So with that, I'm going to return you to the rest of my interview with Chef Bill Yassis. I hope you enjoy the rest of it. The White House. You were at the White House. Now, I so associate you with the Obamas. Well, first of all, President Obama had that, what did he call you, the crust master? Crust master. The crust master for your pies. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not realize you had actually been hired by the Bush uh, 41 administration. 43, excuse me, Mm -hmm. administration, um, George W. Bush's uh, White House. How did that... How did that opportunity come into your life? And, and again, you know, as with the Four Seasons, I just dying to know, was it, was it immediately appealing? Uh, that was pretty much immediately appealing. It's, it's funny that you mentioned 41 because he passed away yesterday. Yes, I should have said. Uh, May he rest uh, in peace. Yeah. Absolute American hero. Yeah. Um, uh, met him only a few times there, um, but uh, just a kind gentleman. Um, Can I just say was, on that point? If, yeah, sure. Because mm-hmm. it is interesting to me. I, I never had anything against him. I never did. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't a Republican. Right. I thought he was a dec- he seemed like a decent person to me. He seemed like someone who was trying to do the best he could as he understood it and as he saw it. Um, everyone has seen these gestures, like the letter he left for Bill Clinton, you know, in the in the Oval Office. Um, but I will say it's very sad to me. That in the last 36 hours, I've met, I've expressed a little sadness. So I had a a much more public role with the Obama administration because of Let's Move and mm-hmm. Mrs. Obama's uh, uh, program. But yes, I was hired by um, Mrs. Bush, and um, that was. And you you ask like, was that something that was immediately appealing? And it was. Um, they. I had I was kind of aware of that job um, because Roland Messnier had been in it for so long, and he was well known in in our in the pastry world, mm-hmm. and uh, and so uh, he was he had retired, and then that then they called me and said you know well it was coming up the Christmas season, and this is kind of funny a thing about the White House that I did not know, and I think most people don't know. But just like any hotel in America, the Christmas season, they do like 25% of their business, in quotation marks, in December. Um, You're talking about the social secretaries? Yeah, the and social the, secretaries. Yeah. And so what's happened is, and it doesn't, doesn't depend on who the president is, is that the tradition in the House is that during that period, they, the administration thanks all the people that have worked with them. And that can be Secret Service, that can be the cabinet secretaries, all the different departments, uh, you know, transportation, homeland security, uh, legislative affairs, uh, everything. They have their own party at the White House and a lot of food is uh, provided. So that was coming up and then so they, you know, the pastry chef wanted to retire and they were kind of like, oh, we need somebody quick. Mm-hmm. 
And what what prepared you for that job in your past? What do you think most made you? Oh, that's you... easy. Tavern on the Green. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I had always uh, worked in New York in yeah. either big restaurants or restaurants with uh, big reputations. So, um, and I think that's kind of a necessary thing that beyond the actual um, training of knowing all the different parts of what a baker does, whether it's viennoiserie or chocolate or petit fours or plated desserts or cakes or all these different segments that a uh, trained pastry chef should be adept at, um, you also have to be able to kind of co-mingle all that and be able to function in a high pressure environment. And I'm, there's really, that's kind of the ultimate high pressure, but mm -hmm. um, I felt like uh, it's an honor and uh, when I grew up you know there was sort of like this sense of like if you're asked to do something for your country you do it and uh, that's the only thing I really know how to do is make cupcakes so I thought I was you know I could make this you were called to service yeah, yeah and I was proud to do it yeah. still am what was the experience like I mean you mentioned the Christmas but just being there yeah, how is that does that take a long time to get used to I never got used to it I never um, I, I never was jaded I, I walked through those gates was a very thrilling goosebump moment every mm -hmm. time. Um, first of all, the thing that shocked me the most is how beautiful the White House is. So it was, it was designed by um, an Irish architect, James Hoban. Uh, the site was, of course, chosen by George Washington. And uh, construction started in 1791, ended in 1799. He died in 1799, so he never lived there. Um, John Adams was the first president to move into the White House. But it's just a... Um, so it's, it was meant to be a showpiece, uh, even though there was this sort of conflict, uh, the Jeffersonian and Adams-Washington sort of conflict of, are we a monarchy? Do we want, does this president need to be, uh, you know, so exalted? And Washington and Adams thought he did. <laughs> Jefferson thought he didn't. Mm -hmm. But uh, even Jefferson, you know, knew that it had to be a symbol of this new country and Anyway, James Hoban, the Irish architect, made a beautiful house. Um, it's just stunning when you think of, it's built on a hill. So when you look at it from Pennsylvania Avenue, it looks like there's only two floors. Mm -hmm. So it's a very simple design. Uh, but it, since it's built on a hill, there's actually six. And it's just the way he designed it, this, this Palladian simplicity, this, this kind of architectural, basically rectangle that you see hides a very complex uh, system inside of rooms that are just made for entertainment. Mm -hmm. The ground, the, the, what we call the state floor, is just for entertainment. To this day, there's no bathroom on that floor, which is stunning. That's crazy. There's no bathroom on the state floor. Uh, so <laughs> you're just meant to come in, and drink your tea or your eggnog, or enjoy the site and get out. Mm -hmm. uh, not having enough time to go to the bathroom. Right. What else? What else that you're able to talk about without violating, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, protocol? Disclosures. But uh, what else was surprising to you there? Well, the beauty of the place certainly. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll go into a heavier subject. Sure. Um, so, Washington D.C. was chosen as the capital of our country. Originally, it was New York to uh, sort of uh, satisfy the southern states. So remember that during the Revolutionary War, so 
war was declared on England to war of independence. And the Southerners were like, well, wait a second. We, that's our best trading partner. Now you want to go to war with the people that we sell everything to and you're ruining our economy. If you want us to go along with this, at least put the capital in a Southern state. So Washington DC was created and that was a, you know, a nod to the Southern states. So it is still a sort of a southern uh, city. Yeah. If you go out and all you have to do is order iced tea in Washington, D.C. to know you're in the south. Yeah. Because there's, there's like four tablespoons of sugar in your iced tea to this day. So um, and then when you look at, okay, even though it was an Irish architect, the, the White House has a very southern sort of bell plantation uh, look to it with the columns. And so... And then one of the very surprising things is that m much of the staff, butlers, are Afro-American. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and to, uh, this can be another part of our talk, but there's a very interesting thing there is that the resident staff, who are not appointed by the, any president, they, well, they are officially, but they stay from administration to administration. So there was a man there, extraordinary man, William Hamilton, and he was hired during the Eisenhower administration as a young man, Afro-American gentleman. And he would say to us, uh, you know, when I first started here, there were bathrooms for coloreds in the White House. That was shocking to me. Yeah. I think it should be shocking to anyone. Mm -hmm. But when you think of it, it was very much a southern city in the 1960s. And they had um, separate bathrooms for black and white. Mm. And um, it really tells us a lot about where we, where we are <clears throat> in this day and age. But the funny thing about Bill was that he would say, of course, I never used them. He goes, they, were, <laughs> they weren't as nice as the other ones. And uh, Bill was a very <clears throat> irascible character and a uh, very independent man. And he was one of the only Afro-Americans who attended Martin Luther King's speech on mm. uh, the Lincoln Memorial because others who worked there were afraid they would be fired if they went to They were spotted there. Spotted there. Yeah. Also, am I, not, am I correct about this? Aren't a number of the people, the butlers and whatnot and people who work at the White House, aren't there a lot of um, multi-generational uh, oh, people families? on uh, families. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Nepotism is alive and well at the White House. You refer to that it as nepotism. To, it okay. <laughs> it used to be. And, okay, so I'm... Well, I had mentioned to you before we were recording, but I, I, yeah. I knew the late Walter Scheib, who yes. had been the White House chef, so mm -hmm. I heard some of this stuff from him. Right. And I, I do remember him. He loved the butlers at the White House. They're amazing. He loved them. They're, they're devoted public servants, and they yeah. never get any credit, so... yeah. Give a prayer for the resident staff because they're very hardworking and they don't ask for recognition. They don't want it, really. And he also, on a much different level, loved the Secret Service. Oh, they're amazing. Who he said were, very you know, in a very subtle way, were omnipresent. They're very hardworking yeah. people. I mean, all these people, they, they don't go to their anniversary party, their kids' graduation, their kids' birthdays, their everything, yeah. their, their funerals, because if they have to be present, they are. Yeah. Okay. What were we talking about? Um, the White House, the volume, ta the Tavern volume, on the Green yeah, prepared. Tavern. So, and this, this incredible, you said what was surprising about it was that this image, so when you think of foreign leaders coming to the White House, they're coming to this very like southern mansion and, yeah. and most of the staff Afro-American. 
And, um, but it's, it's interesting because these are the, some of the most competent and kind and um, just the very definition of hospitality is what is, you know, the aim of the team at the White House and they achieve it daily, as I say, in a very selfless way. Um, so that was, uh, you know, a surprise. And then, and both Mrs. Bush and Mrs. Obama, who, that's kind of really who you work for mm -hmm. as in the kitchen, um, said, I don't want this to seem like a hotel. When people come here, I, they're coming to a home. That's why every menu is different. Every, every time, it's supposed to be that these people are coming to our home for a special event for them. So they didn't want to see like, paper doilies on things, or I remember this, cardboards under the cake. Your cake, you don't put cardboards under your cake at home. You put it on your best platter, mm -hmm. and you serve that to your guests, and that's what they wanted, mm -hmm. you know? So I got, you know, I mistakenly ordered some cardboard, because that's just what I do. Right. Uh, and they were like, no, no, you don't get it. This yeah. is a home. <laughs> this is, put your cake on the friggin' platter, Bill. <laughs> Uh, I think that's really wonderful. I think mm. that's so, so cool that this this symbol of our democracy is a home, a temporary home. As and as President Obama always used to say, "Don't break anything. It's rented. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're not right. We're just temporary here." Um, so that was maybe one of the interesting surprise things in in terms of coming from a restaurant background. Yeah. Now you're working in somebody's home. Yeah. So let's go way back. How did you first set your sights on the professional kitchen? And how did you decide to focus on the sweet stuff? So I was a French major in college. I was surrounded. Where was in, that? Uh, originally in Toledo, Ohio. Mm -hmm. I was a French major there. And then I went to school at Rutgers in New Jersey. And so I was kind of surrounded by French culture and French people, and that means French food. Mm -hmm. And so I was exposed to French food, and then I, um, after college, I, I moved to France for a amount of time, and um, I took a job in a restaurant there, and I was just totally smitten, um, mainly by the markets, I think. The, the markets are just so mind-blowing, and, uh, and I just never looked back. I just, I just oh, I want to do food. And then, um, so I did, you know, kind of was in the savory uh, chef world, the culinary world for a while, but I was very attracted to the visual appeal of, you know, design desserts and, and the colors and the precision and the, the ability to create a plate that was, you know, I, you know, kind of fussy, as, uh, which is a negative term, but that's what appealed to me, mm -hmm. this kind of design element of desserts. Was going, I mean, it seems to me at the time when you, when do you go into your first professional kitchen? What year, roughly? Well, that would be, I was at a restaurant. I, I asked to do a stage in New York through a friend of mine at uh, a place called Perigord Park. Sure. Perigord Park, which is now uh, uh, Vaucluse. Vaucluse, the Michael yeah. White restaurant. Yeah. Still French. So, yeah, still <laughs> back French again because yeah. I was American for a while. Yeah. Um, and there was a wonderful man <clears throat> who was a pastry chef. He had come from the Moulin de Mougin, Roger Verger's three-star restaurant, and he was making desserts there. He agreed to let me stage or apprentice there. And that was the first time I was in a professional kitchen. Okay, but the, the, the 
pastry chefs at that time, it wasn't necessarily, uh, there weren't that many well-known pastry chefs in this country. Very mm, few. Yeah, and I think that's very probably few, true. And I think yeah, very few yeah. Americans, you know, it's always striking to me that when Chez Panisse opened in yeah. 1971, mm-hmm. there was, Lindsay Scher was, there was a dedicated yeah. pastry chef. That right. was not a normal thing, uh, certainly back then. Well, the um, hotels had them. Yeah, uh, and you're right. They they weren't celebrated, but chefs weren't celebrated either. The the, the head uh, chef agreed. was yeah. You know, you were back of the house. You were right. kind of dirty, noisy people that you produce the food. We'd rather not know how you do it. <laughs> and, um, right. But uh, yeah, I think. Did it I seem think, at all remarkable that you chose to do that at the time to other people? No, I don't think so. I think already because that was remember. This was the time when Michel Gerard was at Regine's mm. in a discotheque, and there was a three-star French chef who was in a discotheque in New York City, and Michel Gerard was kind of broke that mold, and so then chefs became, you know, and Bocuse started to appear, and um, and and that whole the whole aura of. Nouvelle Cuisine is what really established it as a part and was highly criticized for being too small and too precious and too expensive. But um, we were so proud of that. We were so proud that we we had this French tradition of of fine food that was rejecting. We were so rebellious, you know. We were uh, um, making this very, very refined food, rejecting butter sauces, etc., and you had Jean-Jacques Rochou at La Côte Basque, and he was drawing these beautiful flowers in sauce on the plate. And it, was, it just elevated the, the whole restaurant experience to, again, to this real, um, this glorious experience. You go in, and there was a painting on your plate in the sauces. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. That all rang your bell. That all appealed it to It all you. rang my bells. And, uh, and, and the... You know, the Pastry chefs at that time were lagging a little bit behind because they were still doing chariot or, or carts, mm-hmm. pastry carts. But some were doing plated desserts, and that was, you know, that was um, beginning to come to the fore. And um, then I started working with David Boulet, who was very much into the, the contemporary French style and all plated desserts, no, no desserts other than what was very carefully crafted on the plate mm-hmm. and pastry chefs became a little bit more like chefs because they were cooking to order they were balancing flavors they weren't just following a recipe there was a little bit more seat of the pants kind of cooking going on and you. and and more am i not mistaken this to me no, i was I'm, i always say i was alive but i wasn't around food at this time this to me is also when because you know, there was a time that overlaps with the time you're talking about, like the Regine's restaurant in New York. Um, you know, I know when he was there, Larry Forgione was buying his desserts from a, a baker. And mm-hmm. it was the same baker that Buzzy O'Keefe at River Cafe was buying. That's how they met. That's yeah, how, yeah. But, but that's, that but was the end of that era. That was the fade out of that. Yeah. And it seemed to me also, though, it, uh, you said, you know, even if you were doing the desserts in-house, you know, there was the cart and whatnot. Yeah. But it seems to me like this was when you would start to see um, desserts that were of a piece 
with the, the savory that had gone before. Right. That there That's was right. a, a sensibility both in That's flavor right. and, and, and visual sensibility that was compatible, I would call it, right. with the, what, the, uh, what was coming up from the savory side of the kitchen. That's Is that right. accurate? That was one of the tenets of Nouvelle Cuisine. Yeah. It was that it was, a, it was a unified experience, it was seamless, that you, you came in and you, you were having this rapturous moment from beginning to end and there wasn't a break where, okay, now I'm gonna like slice a cake on a, right. <laughs> on a uh, cart, which um, I remember saying that in 1985 to Drew and he said, well, don't diminish the role of the dining room, which is, was very interesting. Drew Naporant. Yeah, Drew yeah. Naporant. Uh, and uh, which is very interesting that he said that, and I realized that he's right. I mean, we're, the front of the house is the team, part of the team, and, and we're, we're partners. If, if they are not equally elevated and respected, then the food will not be presented in the way that mm. it should be. So that was, I mean, and that was a long time ago that he said that, and he's right. Well, you know, that, what you just said reminds me of, you know, I think there's certain conversations I've had over my uh, career where I realized that this notion you know, Will Gadara at 11 Madison Park said to me once, he doesn't use, uh, they don't say front of the house and back of the house, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Eric Repair, very famously, I guess, now that it's in his memoir, went, was originally in school to be a waiter. And at the school where he went, you could do that, or you could learn how to be a cook. Mm-hmm. And they weren't, one wasn't seen as more grand than the other. They were both seen as proud yeah. professions, right? Yes. I well, just, the European yeah, system, yeah. Is, it is a profession. Yeah, and, uh, in New York, the cliche was, you know, your waiter's probably, you know, an actor, an actor going to an audition later or whatever. Right. But, um, and then just in the last week, I dropped an interview with Magnus Nilsson, mm-hmm. who was saying that he... Uh, has always felt very lonely in his career because he's the only person at Faviken who was there from the beginning, right? And he said, when I do my next restaurant, I'm gonna, I want to do, if I do another restaurant, I want to do it with a partner. And I said, you mean a co-chef? And he said, no, no, no. And I said, oh, you mean uh, dining room? He said, he said, I don't really, I don't draw those distinctions. We're all just doing a restaurant. You know, it's interesting. It's, it. it's very yeah, different from, very I think, the way we're oriented here in the United States, generally speaking. Maybe it's changing now. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, that's a very uh, astute observation. I think it is changing, and for the better. Yeah. Well, there's a wonderful restaurant in the village called Jeju. I, I think they just got a Michelin star, where um, there is no distinction. The people, you, you work at the restaurant, yeah. and you cook. And your schedule includes sometimes in the dining room, and you serve the food. So it's one team. Yeah. Um, they're sort of wearing whites in the mm-hmm. dining room, but the waiters and cooks are all the same group. Yeah. And you circulate throughout. Interesting. Interesting. So what was it? What was it like uh, collaborating with a young David Boulay? Uh, it was very thrilling. They, uh, you know, this was, that was a time when you know we were talking about this. How there was this like. Uh, you know, this active prise de conscience, this active like awareness that this is a huge wave of new thinking about food. And, you know, we're sort of pretentiously and arrogantly thinking how much we're changing the world. But um, the plates were beautiful. That was the other thing, the plateware was, you started to see like this very elegant dinnerware in restaurants Mm -hmm. before that. People thought, well, you're going to break them anyway, so just put them on a, you know, a plain plate. But now you had real china, and um, 
So yeah, David is um, a mercurial, eccentric, very exciting chef. I still think he has probably one of the finest palates uh, in the world. Uh, the other one would be Girardet, uh, Freddy Girardet. I'm talking about people who are, <laughs> uh, you know, not very active right now. Uh, Pierre Hermé, another one. Mm -hmm. uh, Robert Langs passed away, but the founder of La Maison de Chocolat. These are people that, I'll give you an example, like uh, David Boulay would have a, a recipe for a stock, and it would be X amount of chervil that went in the stock. And he would taste the stock later, and he would say, like, oh, you forgot the chervil. I mean, that's really, he has, you know, some people have like 40-20 vision. Yeah. They have better than 20-20 yeah. vision. He has 40-20 palate. I ate uh, at his, right before he closed, that summer when he was getting ready to shut it down, uh, I twice went to Boulay. At the old restaurant at 165 uh, Duane? Or? Uh, yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I was still there. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. No, 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 the more oh, recent. Uh, no, 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 West no. Broadway. Oh, this one. On, also, yeah, 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 yeah. Hudson. Was, yeah. On Hudson. Wasn't it on Duane also? Hudson and Duane, yes. Yeah, on the corner. Yeah, mm -hmm. so, but still amazing. Still oh, yeah. amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, great. food that just food was great. knocked you back on and your original. heels. Yes. I mean, he, the, he, he comes up with very original, uh, I mean, it might be inspired by X, Y, or Z, but uh, the food and the progression is very original. Was he as a younger man as, I mean, you said Mercurial and whatnot. I mean, I've interviewed him only in the last several years, right? Um, found him obviously brilliant, um, but also definitely on his own, uh, in his own astral plane, on his own yeah. astral plane. Yeah, uh, yeah always I mean, was. I did very an interview, intense. we did very an interview intense. for my book. We spent five hours together. Oh, and but I can't say that it was all about food or it was all about the topic of my book but it right. was it was fascinating I would have sat for another five hours but he's always been known sort of you know people talked in the old days that sometimes you know there'd be a lag between courses and and but that might be because he was improvising on right. the spot right Right. yes very much so very yeah. much the auteur artist yeah. artist temperament <clears throat> artist temperament um the meal would be fantastic, but um, it could last a long time. My favorite story is one that Dominique Simon, who was the longtime uh, maitre d' there, tells about this one day when there was this huge snowstorm in New York. And uh, <clears throat> so they were afraid that there would be a lot of cancellations. And so David said, take everything, take all the and you know they were saying, well, uh, you know, if everybody does show up, there'll be waits. And he was like, no, they're all going to cancel. So take everything. And so they all showed up. It was in the, it was in the snow, <laughs> snowing down. People, there was a line out. So this is a, this is a fancy restaurant. You know, yeah, a yeah, line yeah. Out the door, in the snow, all the way over to Hudson. And Dominique Simon was going around and like passing out hot chocolate or something. And and then <laughs> got to the end of the line. And there's a guy in a wheelchair. Oh my God. In the snow. And the guy goes, How long do I have to wait <laughs> to get in there? But that also has to do with that, that you know, this sort of um, that aura of that period when yes. like, people would do anything to sit at certain tables in, and, in New York. And I also think it's hard for people to fathom, you know, that um, people say this, you know, people. Frequently, it's an exaggeration, but, you know, I did a talk with Ruth Reichel a couple of months ago when my book came out, and, you know, I, I made the comment that I thought there was very little separation between chefs and journalists back then, right? And she said, yeah, well, there were like 10 people in America who cared about food, you right, know? Right, right, yes. And similarly, people have said to me about New York at that time, 
and even they don't talk about the U.S. in general much differently. You know that there were like there were like ten restaurants where you wanted to work. You know that was it. Mm-hmm. Like if you were coming oh, that's up, that's interesting. Yes, very true. Right? Very if you true. were co- a guy, oh, yeah. if you were coming up, you wanted mm-hmm. to work for Jeremiah at Stars. You wanted to work for Wolfgang in L.A. You wanted to work right. uh, uh, in who would it be in New York? You wanted to work for Waxman. You wanted to work for Boulet. You depending mm-hmm. on your kind of Le style. Right. And even and on the you know for the old school, um, Rashu was known for taking on Americans before. Yeah, most people, Jean Louis in DC, but like yep. there weren't a ton of places no, that you want no. you you wanted to go there as wasn't a young that cook. Much good food. Yeah. yeah, but no, to me, is. what you're talking about speaks to the customer side of that equation. Oh, I see. Yeah, that, so you were jamming these the only good places that were there. Yeah, and that audience was growing, and and awareness was growing, and so that's why you get a line out the door uh, for the for the places that were really top notch. and yeah. and trying to. It's also about the ingredients too, which there wasn't enough, um, you know, of this kind of great produce, great fish, great uh, uh, all the meats and everything and proteins. Yeah. Which more and more, that chain has has gotten stronger and better better produce is available now. Was there an equivalent to that in the pastry side? Were there things that you? Well, the pastry still has we... not, uh, I think, caught up in that sense. The um, it's it's happening, but um, yeah. Well, fruits, for example. I mean, now you have some of these great fruit purveyors in California and and even in Florida and around the country. And there's more foraging and and this kind of like so you get wild berries now, like huckleberries where you couldn't before. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they're they're catching up, but definitely an ingredient-driven menu is is fully. Um, is in charge of the pastry menu as well. Mm-hmm. Right? So ingredient driven, seasonally driven. And at local, I don't really care that much about I'll go out on a limb because for me, um, you know, how much local in January in New York do you want to feed? I, what I say, well, right. I do, I'm devoted to local, but what I say is if the person growing this is, is a responsible person in their locality, if they care about their locality, if they care about if they they have some humanity and they're treating their workers well and they're treating their community well, if they're tied into their community, that's local to me. You're, mm-hmm. you're supporting your locality, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have to come within 50 miles of New York State because in dessert you won't make much. No, not in the season that we're plunging Carrot into. Cake, maybe. <laughs> Carrot cake. <laughs> um. So when you think about the future for yourself, I mean, obviously you're this—you're not that far in here, but do you, is there unfinished business for Biliasis at this point in time, or are you yeah, just sort of wanna, like taking uh, it as it comes? Uh, no, no, I have a five-year plan. Um, we we are fully intend to open a, a small cafe bakery, which is uh, is on the boards, and um, because we um, the. The theater stuff has been very successful. We're being asked to do other things. And, and this restaurant uh, is, you know, I mean, it's just the beginning, but you can feel that there's, there's just great energy here. There's great people. We have a wonderful team. And um, so we're hoping for growth in, in this restaurant as well. And so we're working on building an outside commissary because as big as this restaurant is, it is in a skyscraper in New York City and there's only so much right real estate space that you can use so yeah. um 
we need more space to produce more uh -huh. and better stuff. Chocolates in particular, we want to um, <clears throat> we want to start a wide chocolate program and oh, great. have wonderful chocolates. Great. Mm -hmm. So I always say this is a chef show, not a food show, but I am curious going in. You know, I'm, we're washed in the holiday season now. What is, what is your favorite holiday treat? Oh, uh, the aforementioned, uh, right now it depends what day you ask me, but I'm really into the marron glacé, these mm -hmm. uh, chestnuts. You personally as an eater? As an eater, yeah. yes, I eat way too many of them. Um, so it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's sort of a seasonal treat in, in Europe, and yeah. it's, it sometimes is translated here. But um, we get these great um, chestnuts from a company called Sabaton in uh, France, and it's one of those kind of food companies that I really admire uh, in that it's uh, a family still owned like the coffee syrup tablet it's still the same family from mm. fourth fifth generation and you you go to the the factory and in chestnut season and you see these you know I, I until like five years ago I didn't even know what a chestnut looked like it's a beautiful green spiky thing but the problem with chestnuts is when you open them, the skin, just like with walnuts, is deeply embedded in the nut itself. So when you go to this Sabaton factory, you see all these ladies, and it's all women, and they're wearing like the white smock and white face mask and a hat. And they're with this needle, I think they probably bring it from home, with a needle they're pulling these little shreds of nut skin out of the flesh of hmm. the chestnut. And to this day, I've been using Sabaton chestnuts for it. I'm not plugging them, I, but I am plugging That's them. That's okay. They, to this day, I have never found a single scrap of chestnut skin in a Sabaton chestnut. And they're That's huge. It's a bold statement. They're it's bold. Yeah. And they're huge. They're, they're like yeah. bigger than any chestnuts you find elsewhere. So, yeah, I'm really into that right now. So that's your thing. So we... Um, we uh, glaze them very lightly, you know, uh, fondant is not particularly, um, you know, in vogue now. Mm -hmm. Fondant is what you put on top of, poured fondant, you put on top of eclairs. But we thin it out, and so it just gets a very light glaze, and we mix in some single malt. And um, so that uh, gives a little extra Sounds punch great. to our marron glacé. <laughs> okay, you're grinning widely as you talk oh, about yeah, it. I, they're magical. It's so yeah. great. It's so great. I mean, so many chefs I know are still in, so in love with the food. Totally. It's amazing. I mean, why else do it? Yeah. yeah. It has to be delicious. All right. Well, thank you for sitting down with me. Well, thank I'm glad you. we persisted. I knew it would be. I knew <laughs> Because when we talked for the book, we had such a good time. So thank I you. knew it would be. I'm sorry that we had to reschedule. Oh, no, no, no. That's, it's, it's fine. I, 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 well, I'll tell you off air, but I, I try to be the, the easiest person to cancel on in the, oh, in the restaurant are. business. You are. Yeah, yeah. Most people won't talk to you again. <laughs> Stuff comes up. Yeah. Um, all right. All the best for the holidays and for the new year. Thank you. Thanks. And that's our show for today. And that is also a wrap for the season. Thank you all for listening. Chef Bill Yasses, thank you for being our guest today. And Kat and Vitor at Heritage, thank you for all the extra work you did to get these shows up during the holiday season. I hope you guys are enjoying your time off. And to all of you out there in podcast land, happiest of New Year's, and we will see you back early in 2019 
on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Sweet.